Thanks for listening to Boston University School of Medicine's Safer and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education, Scope of Pain podcast series. I'm Jessica Alpert, and this is Episode 5. If at any point you want more information on receiving credit for this course, visit our website, scopeofpain.org. There are also resources that accompany this series. All of it can be found at scopeofpain.org. In this episode, we are going to deal with some worrisome behaviors exhibited by our case study patient. Joining us now is Dr. Daniel Alford. He's a professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, as well as director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit at Boston Medical Center. Welcome back, Dr. Alford. Thank you. Also in studio is Dr. Jessica Taylor, an assistant professor of medicine at Boston University. Thanks for being here, Dr. Taylor. Thank you. Both doctors are general internists practicing primary care and addiction medicine at Boston Medical Center. So there's been a development in the Kathy James case. She seemed to be doing well on her pain treatment plan, including opioid therapy for her neuropathy and chronic hip pain. And that was steady for 11 months. But then her PCP, Dr. Johnson, was notified that Kathy was seen in the emergency department of a local hospital, requesting an early refill of her oxycodone after running out early. The emergency department physician noted that she was in moderate to severe opioid withdrawal and gave her a prescription for enough oxycodone pills to last her one week, the exact amount of time until her next appointment with Dr. Johnson. Let's listen to that visit. Hi, Kathy. It's good to see you. Hi, Dr. Johnson. So I was surprised to get a call last week from the emergency room doctor about your visit requesting an early refill of your oxycodone. He was such a jerk. He's treating me like I'm an addict, and I'm really not an addict. It's that my foot pain has gotten a lot worse. I did start taking an extra pill in the afternoon because of that, and so yeah, I ran out. I think I've actually gotten used to this dose, and it doesn't work the way it was working. The pain is so bad that it's really hard to get to work, and I can't sleep because even the sheets hurt. You said this was going to work, and it's really not working. I, I need that higher dose now, I think. Dr. Alford, what do you think is going on here? What is your reaction to to Kathy's behavior? So the first thing is to take a deep breath and think about all of the possibilities that may be going on, kind of thinking about a differential diagnosis for these worrisome behaviors. The first thing to think about is, is this substance-seeking? Has she actually developed an addiction or an opioid use disorder? Or is she self-medicating some other psychiatric diagnosis? So we know opioids make people feel better, so is she taking it for that? Or is there some criminal intent, right? Is she selling her opioids? We know that these go for about a dollar a milligram on the street, so maybe she's selling some, taking some. On the other side of the equation is maybe this is all pain relief seeking. So maybe her disease has gotten worse or maybe her disease is just not very responsive to opioids or maybe she has developed opioid analgesic tolerance. And then the last two issues to think about would be is this withdrawal-mediated pain or is this opioid-induced hyperalgesia? And unfortunately, it's not always so clear because sometimes it's a lot of these all mixed together. So it could be a patient with real chronic pain who is selling some of the opioids and may also have developed an addiction at the same time. 
Okay, so you mentioned a couple of things which are new terms to me. Can you explain them in a bit more detail? Withdrawal-mediated pain and opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Let's start with opioid withdrawal-mediated pain. Remember that when someone's on chronic opioid therapy, they have physical dependence. So there are certain times of the day where their opioid level may drop, where they actually experience withdrawal, and the first thing they're going to experience is worsening pain. So they take their opioid, they feel better. Are they treating the withdrawal or are they treating the pain? In theory, that's why an extended-release long-acting opioid would be used to prevent these ups and downs and to create kind of a more steady state so you don't have this withdrawal-mediated pain phenomenon. Okay, and then there's the opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Yeah, so this is a strange process where people who are on chronic opioids, their pain actually gets worse. It's this paradoxical response. And we don't understand the pathophysiology, and we don't even know what the incidence really is, and there are no criteria to diagnose it. But clinically, what I look for is, you know, I'm treating a very localized, specific pain disorder, and now they're complaining that everything hurts. Now, I don't worry about this when someone is doing well, but I absolutely worry about it when someone isn't doing well on their opioid, especially when now everything starts to hurt. I will tell you that I've had 0% success in convincing my patients they have this. And I think it's a difficult concept, right, that the opioid is going to make my pain worse. I've tried things like go Google it, look it up, and they do, and they come back and they say, I read about it but it's not me. So I think it is a difficult concept for some of our patients to understand that the opioid is causing their pain. But when the patient isn't doing well, we're going to taper them. And the good news is that some patients will actually get better, especially those that have this phenomenon, that is opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Okay, Dr. Taylor, I'm going to turn back to you. How does a provider determine whether someone has developed an opioid use disorder or an addiction? So the truth is that in the clinic, this can be really challenging to determine. And so it can be helpful to to use specific criteria for opioid use disorder. The DSM-5 offers specific criteria for opioid use disorder that includes 11 items. And broadly speaking, these fall into three separate categories. We like to call these the three Cs. So these include loss of control. And by that, we mean taking more than prescribed, inability to hold a prescription safely, spending more time using compulsive use, and then continued use despite harms. And harms can really span a variety of parts of a patient's life. So it could be, for example, difficulty performing at work, trouble fulfilling family obligations, interpersonal conflict, health consequences. But the key piece is that the use continues in spite of apparent consequences. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that addiction, when we talk about addiction or a use disorder, that's a behavioral maladaptation. Whereas physical dependence, which we've talked about in the past, is a physiologic adaptation. We expect that anyone on opioids chronically will develop physical dependence. We get into addiction when people start to have consequences, continued use despite harm, compulsive use. Okay, Dr. Taylor. So if you observe these worrisome behaviors, how do you begin to broach this topic with your patient? First, I just want to acknowledge that these are challenging conversations. And I think, you know, as providers, we often feel very nervous about disrupting our relationship with a patient. So it can be intimidating to sit down to have a conversation about worrisome behavior, but it's so important. I think what we can do is be very candid and timely and also specific in telling the patient the specific behaviors that we've observed that make us feel nervous about their safety risk for continuing an opioid. 
And, you know, again, you, you can refer back to the three C's. So loss of control, compulsive use, and continued use despite harms to kind of ground your discussion of the behaviors that make you feel worried. I think it's also important to keep in mind that many patients have both chronic pain and a substance use disorder. And so oftentimes these conversations can become difficult when patients feel that their pain isn't believed or that providers aren't taking their pain seriously. And you know, in these and other cases, the way to, to help manage the conversation is to really focus on risks and benefits and focus on whether the treatment is right for the patient. So using a risk-benefit framework avoids any sort of interpersonal dynamic between the patient and provider. You know, for example, I often hear providers say, well, I'm just not comfortable prescribing you oxycodone. And then the patient feels like it's a provider problem. Just get more comfortable. Prescribe the oxycodone. But in fact, the issue is really that the risks of the medication outweigh the benefits. And that's in medicine how we determine if a particular approach is right for a patient. Now, if you're worried that a patient has a substance use disorder, that also becomes a different conversation because that's really an opportunity to talk to the patient about substance use disorder treatment and to connect them with services. There are some circumstances where a patient might have a use disorder but not be ready to accept treatment that day. And so in those cases, you really want to tell them about the services available in your clinic, tell them what the resources are, and just let them know that you're here to have the conversation again if and when they're ready. So you mentioned risks and benefits, but what if it's just loss of benefit? Yeah, so the first thing to do is to reassess the factors that are causing the pain in the first place, reattempt to treat the underlying disease or any comorbidities that may be making the pain worse, and then you can consider adding treatment, like adding non-pharmacological treatment, acupuncture, cognitive behavioral therapy. You could also think about adding breakthrough medications if the person's having breakthrough symptoms. And then consider changing to a different opioid, from one opioid to another, called opioid rotation. Let's spend a little more time on breakthrough medications. When someone's on a long-acting medication, extended-release preparation, sometimes they have breakthrough symptoms. The first thing to do is to not assume that they're going to have breakthrough symptoms, so I wouldn't start breakthrough medications unless they start to complain of these symptoms. And the first choice would be a non-opioid, using an NSAID or acetaminophen, even though they're on a long-acting opioid. However, if that doesn't work, you certainly could consider using a short-acting opioid, either the same molecule as the long-acting opioid or a different molecule, or you could use one of the dual-mechanism opioids like tapentanol or tramadol. And if that doesn't work, what else would you consider? So then I would consider opioid rotation. And this really is switching from one opioid to another. And the goal is to restore efficacy or to limit any adverse effects that are occurring. And I would say a third goal is to decrease the overall dose of opioid, that is, decrease the morphine milligram equivalents. And it's based on large intra-individual variation in response to different opioids. It's based on surveys and anecdotal evidence. And it is promising, but it needs to be more fully validated. So if a provider is considering rotation, what do they need to be thinking about? You need to figure out, well, what's going to be the dose of the opioid I'm switching to? And so you're going to go to a conversion table. But it's important to understand the limitations. And the limitations include that these tables are derived from relative potency ratios using a single dose analgesic in opioid naive patients. They're based on limited doses and ranges of doses. And unfortunately, they don't really reflect the realities of our patients who are on long-term opioids. They're also not reliable because of individual pharmacogenetic differences, and most tables don't take into account incomplete cross-tolerance. 
So remember, a patient who's been on long-term opioids is going to have tolerance to the sedation and respiratory depression effects. If you switch them to an equal analgesic dose of another opioid, you risk causing sedation again. So you need to decrease the dose of that second opioid to account for this incomplete cross-tolerance. Okay, so if the tables aren't ideal, what else do you recommend? So I like GlobalRPH.com, and what this allows you to do is to put the person's current opioid and current daily dose, to put the opioid that you want to rotate them to, and then prompts you to decrease the dose of the new medication to control for incomplete cross-tolerance. So usually I put in a 50% decrease, and then you say calculate, and it will tell you what the dose of the new opioid should be. Okay, so have you found rotation to be effective? Absolutely. I found some patients do really well and do well on a lower overall dose compared to what they were on before. And we also have both had cases where it doesn't go so well. I had a patient recently who was not having pain control benefit on a particular opioid, and we made a change, hoping that her pain would improve. And unfortunately, the pain didn't get better, and her functional status also started to go down. So, Dr. Alford, what's going on here? It sounds like the patient isn't benefiting from opioids at this point, and I think it's important to remember that not all chronic pain is opioid-responsive, that more opioid is not always better. In fact, sometimes it increases the risk for adverse effects, and some patients with chronic pain on opioids do better once you've tapered them. So a patient like this, you might want to consider tapering. Okay, so if it's lack of benefit, Dr. Taylor, how did you respond? So these are really challenging conversations. And I think in cases like this, I like to really hone in on the risk-benefit framework. If there's not benefit, that means that it's not a good choice to continue the medication. I think I like to really empathize with my patients when a treatment that we've worked on together hasn't worked. I'm frustrated with the treatment. I'm frustrated with the fact that I don't have a better fix, but I'm not frustrated with the patient. You know, it's also a good opportunity to remind the patient that you believe their pain, right? So you believe that they have pain, you want to find a good treatment option for them, and unfortunately this one was not a success. It's also a good opportunity to work with the patient on their strengths and really zero in on the ways that they can mobilize coping strategies, mobilize non-opioid pain control approaches to help manage their pain. And then I think a lot of patients in cases like this are afraid of being abandoned by their provider. So really showing a commitment to continue to work with them that even if you're not prescribing the opioid, you will continue to see them regularly can provide some reassurance. And to act on that, I like to schedule a short interval follow-up so that we have a really concrete plan to see each other again. So Dr. Alford, let's talk about discontinuing opioids. Yeah, so discontinuing opioids would be completely appropriate in someone who's not benefiting. It's also appropriate if you're worried about harm, and you don't have to prove with 100% certainty that the person has developed addiction or is diverting because these are really hard things to determine with certainty, especially in a you know 15-minute office visit. But if the patient is unable to take the medication safely or they're non-adherent with the strategies you're using to keep them safe, then it's totally appropriate to taper the opioids, even in the setting of benefit. You need to determine how urgent the taper needs to be based on how worried you are about them. In some cases, you don't even need to taper it. If the patient doesn't have physical dependence, that is, they're taking the opioid intermittently during the day, then you don't even need to taper it. Make sure you document the rationale for why you're tapering. And then finally, sometimes I get asked, well, isn't this patient abandonment? And I would say, no, you're not abandoning the patient. You're abandoning the opioid because it's either not helping them or it's hurting them or both. What do you do when you get patient pushback? 
So some of the common things that I hear from patients is, but I really, really need opioids, or don't you trust me, or I thought we had a good relationship, I thought you cared about me, or if you don't give them to me, I'll drink or use drugs or hurt myself, or can't you just give me enough until I find a new doc? And the answer to that is no. I cannot continue to prescribe a medication that's either not helping you or is hurting you or both. And Dr. Taylor, in your case, what ended up happening? Did you come to some sort of resolution? So this is a situation that I wish had had a better outcome. Um, I talked to my patient about my concerns about lack of benefit, which were really clear. We had been documenting PEG scales in her case over time. And so we fortunately had some objective data that supported the fact that her pain was not getting better on either of the opioids that we tried. And also shared some concerns about the fact that our visits were increasingly focused on the opioid only at the expense of being able to engage in other multimodal strategies, including physical therapy and behavioral health. And the visit didn't go as well as I had hoped. The patient got very angry with me, accused me of abandoning her. Um, There was some swearing involved, and she actually stormed out of the office. And so what we did, both myself and my front desk team member, was just encourage her to come back when she was ready to talk to us differently about the opioids and about a taper plan. Yeah. So, Dr. Alford, when these things happen, when the blowups happen, but then patients do return, how would you begin to taper a patient like this? The general approach is to, again, decide why am I tapering? If it's because of lack of benefit, you can do it over weeks to months. If it's because you're worried about the patient related to risks and harms, you're really talking about doing it over days to weeks. But the strategy is to first reduce the medication dose, Second, increase the amount of time between doses. Now, remember to build up alternative treatments at the same time, right? Because you're taking away the opioid. You want to add non-opioids and non-pharmacological treatment. I will tell you that with my patients who I've tapered, they sometimes feel withdrawal when I make the first dose decrease. You can treat that withdrawal symptom with an alpha-ergenergic agonist like clonidine, which would be off-label, or lefexidine. Um, and sometimes that really gets them over those first days after you've decreased the dose. Thank you, Dr. Daniel Alford. Appreciate you being here. Well, thank you. Dr. Jessica Taylor, many thanks to you. Thank you. On our next and final episode, we'll meet a new patient with an unexpected urine drug test result and look into the possible reasons why. Scope of Pain was developed in collaboration with our national partners, the Council of Medical Specialty Societies and the Federation of State Medical Boards. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS program companies. Production by Rococo Punch. To follow up on any of the material you heard today, please visit our website, scopeofpain.org, for visuals and other relevant materials. To receive credit, you'll need to listen to all six episodes, and then go to www.scopeofpain.org to complete a post-test and evaluation. I'm Jessica Alpert. Thanks for listening. Thank you.